Good morning, Hillcrest. Great to see everybody this morning. Good looking crew here today. Y'all doing all right up in the balcony this morning? Shout amen. Amen from the balcony people. Good to see everybody this morning. And uh, even though we can't see you, it's a wonderful thing to welcome those of you that are tuning in with us wherever you might be today. And a hello to you at Spanish Trail this morning. God bless each and every one of you. We love our <clears throat> congregation that gathers from week to week, same time we do here at 9.30 on the other side of town. And wherever you may be, our prayer for you is that God would speak a good word uh, to you today. These are important days in the life of our church, important days as Brad prayed for a moment ago in the life of our country, and uh, we are on our knees. But I'm thankful that as we get on our knees and beg God for righteousness and glory and peace and unity, that we are reminded as we do that, that for the believer, the best is still always yet to come. There's a great day and a wonderful day. We've been singing about it all morning. In fact, it reminds me of a story I heard one time about a lady named Merrill who passed away elderly at a ripe old age. And when it came the time for her memorial service that they held in the church that she'd attended for years and years, people by the scores gathered and wish her family well, but as they made their way down the aisle of the church uh, to view her remains, they were shocked and surprised to see her there, beautifully adorned, beautifully dressed. But what surprised them was that Merrill was holding a fork in her hand. And nobody could understand why in the world she would be holding a fork. Nobody had ever seen anything like that before. The pastor recognizing that everybody would be curious about why Merrill, this woman that they'd served together with and worshiped together with for so long, was holding a fork there in her coffin. And he began to explain, you may be wondering why this is, and I'll tell you why. It was her express wish. And the reason that's the case is because she remembered a time when she was a little girl and her grandmother used to carry her to church, and like most small Baptist churches, once a month they would have a, a dessert social. How many of you remember those days? You'd have a dessert social, they called it, after church, most of the time down in the basement. They called it the Fellowship Hall. I just remember it as a place of cold chairs and bad coffee. Amen. But they did have good desserts. I do remember that as well. And so, like most young kids, those kids make a beeline, they stampede, they want to get the dessert first. She was always like that. She would eat her dessert and then go and place her dishes in the tubs, including her fork. And her grandmother noticed that this was a typical pattern. She told her one day, you know what, let me clue you in on a little secret. Here at our church, you want to keep hold of that fork because we intentionally keep the best desserts until the very last. Now, they had a strategy for doing that. And the strategy, of course, they, over time, they knew what the best desserts were, and they had kind of the same strategy that you see at the wedding Cana of Galilee, where they served the worst wine first, but saved the best for last. You remember that story? Well, they knew that people would be well full on the bad desserts first, and there would be much more of the good stuff to take home with them. So she said, always keep your fork because we always put the best desserts out last. 
So in case you're wondering why Meryl wanted you to see her holding a fork, she wanted to send a message to you, a spiritual message that applies to every single one of us. And that is simply this, in Christ, the best is always yet to come. Can you say amen this morning? We conclude today uh, this 16-part series on the fundamental doctrines of our faith using as our template the historic confession of faith known as the Apostles' Creed. And today, we come to a simple subject I've simply entitled today's message, I Believe That Death Is Not The End, and that brings us to the climactic line in the Apostles' Creed that simply says this, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Now, this is basically a forward-looking statement. Most of the other statements tend to have a backward look to them, as most statements of faith do. Our faith is rooted in actual events that happened in terms of what God the Father has done from time and eternity and what He sent His Son Christ to do and what Christ in fact did and the sending of the Holy Spirit, among other things, the founding of the church. We've talked about all of these, and they're all rooted in terms of things God has done in the past. We have a backward glance, and that backward glance, rooted clearly in the Word of God in front of us, forms the basis of our faith. But then there is a measure of our faith that's always looking ahead. Another word for that is hope. And this is the most important statement of hope that we have in the Apostles' Creed, strongly rooted in things that are still yet to come, particularly what God's going to do to every believer when it comes time for us to dwell eternally with Him, and the place where God's people are going to spend eternity together forever with Him. Now, if you're like me, you read the Bible, and we read of heaven, and we speak of heaven. Everybody in here knows of the certainty and surety of that place, that eternal place that we often call heaven. But one thing I've noticed uh, that happens in the lives of many of God's people is that we speak of heaven, but then we live oftentimes as if we're afraid of heaven. We want to talk about heaven, but we don't want to talk about it too much because that implies death, and death is something that we tend to be fearful of and don't want to have much to do with. But we certainly don't want to be afraid of heaven. Western Christians like us tend to be strongly tied to the present. That's one of the downsides, I think, for believers living in a materialistic, consumer-driven culture. We have lots of things and lots of toys, and we gauge success on the things that we can tend to accumulate, and we really don't want to give up any of that stuff. And so it's real easy for us, particularly as believers living the way that God has blessed us and allowed us to live, to get strongly tied to the present. And if we're not careful, that can become sinful. If we become too rooted in the here and now, that we really don't like to think much about the age to come, and we don't really want to dwell too much on the eternity of heaven, that can become a problem for God's people. So we don't ever want to get into the position that we don't want this world, this life as we know it, to ever come to an end. If we are walking closely in the Spirit of God, abiding in our relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm just telling you, the closer you live in relationship to Jesus Christ, the more there becomes a longing for heaven. 
not just an informational understanding about heaven in your life, which we get from the word of God, but I'm telling you, when you're, when you're walking with Jesus and you're getting closer to Jesus and you're really maturing as a disciple, you're really going to be desirous of heaven. You're going to want it. You're going to yearn for it. You're going to long for it, this better place and this better day that is to come. I want to be like Paul, who was not afraid of making the transition to heaven. You remember what he wrote in Philippians 1.23? He said, I desire, focus on that phrase, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Better than what? Better than the here and now. Better than the struggles. Better than the disappointments. Better than the beatings. Better than the uncertainties of this life. I desire to depart this life and to be with Christ. And why did he say that? Same chapter. For me to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. Death is couched, as it were in terms of personal profit, not in terms of loss, as most of the time we tend to couch it, but death is couched in terms of the believer's profit. And that's why we need to learn to live with that kind of desire. Be careful about becoming too attached to this world and the things in this world, because let me let you in on a little secret. You ain't going to be here really all that long. And our citizenship, the Bible says, is where? In heaven. We eagerly await a savior from there. And that's why Paul reminds us, 1 Corinthians 15, if in Christ we have hope only in this life, we are of all people the most to be pitied. So as we think about our future today, as we focus on the statements of the Apostles' Creed that point us forward looking in anticipation of what's to come, I want to offer you as we conclude our series, four affirmations that we can make about this subject Life after death, we believe that death is not the end. Affirmation number one, we affirm an eternal future for everybody. Do you get it? We affirm an eternal future for everybody. Every person, regardless of their color, their nationality, regardless of their family background, regardless of their station of life, regardless of how much money or material wealth they have, every person is created by God in the image of God, and they are created as an eternal being. Somebody is going to live forever. And where you live forever and how you live forever is determined, the Bible teaches, by your personal relationship with Jesus Christ or by your lack of a relationship with Jesus Christ. What you do and how you connect to Jesus determines the rest of your eternal destiny. Most of us became acquainted, I think, at least most of us in the body of Christ, with this concept of eternal life, sometimes known as everlasting life, from the moment that as children we memorized John three sixteen. right? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have what? Everlasting life or eternal life. And indeed, that's where we first typically learn it is from that statement right there. But that phrase, eternal life or everlasting life, is really all over the New Testament. It occurs some 43 times in the New Testament alone, most of those occurrences coming written by the hand of the Apostle John. That phrase, eternal life, is all over the Gospel of John. It's all over the letters of John almost 50 times in the New Testament uh, alone. 
And when you think about it, it may well be the most nagging question of the human spirit, one posed in the Bible as early as the book of Job, where Job asked the question, if a man dies, will he live again? You come over to the New Testament, you find that same train of thought coming from the lips of the rich young ruler, that famous story where this rich young man comes to the Lord Jesus Christ. He rushes up to Jesus one day and he asks him, Mark chapter 10, for example, good teacher, what must I do to inherit what? Eternal life. He wanted to know, how do I get it? He'd heard about it. He was aware of the concept, but he had no idea how one came to acquire, as it were, eternal life. And of course, Jesus clearly answered those questions in the context, not only for the rich young ruler, but in the context of his earthly ministry. From the time his earthly ministry began, when he said things like, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Or when he said, for example, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Or consider, for example, Jesus' statement, I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Now, those are just three representative examples out of the 43, 44 or so <clears throat> illustrations of the concept of eternal life you find in the Bible. And these three that I've just selected at random this morning all make a strong connection to something having to do with Jesus himself. Clearly, eternal life is directly related to my relationship with God the Son, Jesus Christ. Those who know the Son know the Father, and the end result of knowing the Father by knowing the Son is this wonderful gift that Jesus called eternal and abundant life. But that's not to say that only those who have a right relationship with Jesus Christ live forever. Can I say it? Are y'all still with me? Amen. Everybody lives forever. Everybody lives forever somewhere because the Bible clearly teaches that the unredeemed live forever as well. Most of the time when you read about the eternity of the unsaved dead, how the lost spend their forever life, it's not couched so much as life as it is couched as death. So they're really not eternally alive, they're eternally dead, even though in their eternal death they're still very much alive. They're conscious of it, they're aware of it. So everybody exists and dwells forever in an eternal state somewhere. And that's illustrated by the teaching of Jesus concerning the final judgment in Matthew 25. This is a lengthy passage of scripture and I've tried to condense it down to a manageable form this morning, but let's take a look at it. Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31. Jesus is teaching here, when the son of man comes in his glory, he will, say it out loud, he will what? separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats and he'll place the sheep on his right but the goats on his left then the king will say to those on his right come you who are blessed by my father inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world then he will say to those on his left, depart from me. You cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil 
and his angels, and these, those on his left, these will go away into eternal what? Punishment, eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal what? Life. You see the distinction between the two? What's the connection there? Eternal, eternal. They all have eternal existences, whether they're saved or lost, whether they've lived in light or in darkness, whether they're sheep or goats, whether they're on the right or on the left, they all live forever. One goes unto eternal life in the presence of God the Father. The other goes to an existence of eternal death separated from God the Father. And so we affirm as we begin our descent this morning in our series, we affirm the certainty of an eternal future for everybody. Y'all with me? Say amen. The second affirmation is this. We affirm a transitional existence for all between the death of the body and the second coming of Jesus Christ. Did you get that? We affirm a transitional existence for all between the death of the body and the second coming of Christ. Now, this takes us back to our discussion, everybody's favorite message in this series about Christ's descent to the dead, right? Now, everybody was sitting up straight and listening with both eyes that Sunday. And this takes us back to our discussion, this controversial creedal phrase that says Christ descended to the dead. And one of the things I reminded everybody then was that what happened to Jesus Christ between his physical death and resurrection is the same thing that's going to happen to all of us if we die in Christ before the coming again of the Lord. We call that the intermediate state. Sometimes it's referred to as the disembodied state. And once again, it's something that applies to all people, whether they're saved or lost, it doesn't matter. We all exist not only eternally, but we exist after death in this transitional state albeit in radically different ways. When people die, they pass away from this life and their spirits continue to live. Your body dies, but you don't need a body to live. Your spirit, which is really the real you, continues to live even apart from the body. And that spirit departs from this existence, the here and now, and it goes to what sometimes is called the abode of the dead or the realm of the dead. This is the realm that the Old Testament writers referred to, particularly in the Psalms, as Sheol, the place of the dead. And if you know, if you die in the Lord, if you're saved, if you've been redeemed by faith in Jesus Christ, your spirit goes to be with the Lord. If you're one of the sheep, as Jesus used it, uh, used that analogy back uh, in Matthew 25, your body goes back to the earth, back to the elements, but the spirit of your life departs and goes to be with the Lord in the same place that the thief on the cross was told he would be before that day was over, that realm called paradise, or what we typically refer to today as heaven. When we talk about heaven today, our friends and our loved ones who've died in the Lord are in heaven, we're really talking about that transitional existence the place where Jesus is, the place where Jesus has gone to prepare an eternal final dwelling place for us, that place he called paradise, and that's where the spirit of believers go, where Jesus himself is right now. 
And that's the reason Paul understood death is something that was profitable. To die is gain, and it fundamentally is gain for this very reason, because we shed away all that is corruptible, all that is prone to disease, all that is prone to decay, all that is prone to disappointment. We take that off and we shed it, and we cloak ourselves with the very presence of Jesus Christ. That's true for believers. But for those who die apart from faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the same way their bodies go back to the elements, their bodies go back to the earth in some way, shape, or form, their spirits continue to live as well, but in a different realm, not in heaven or paradise, but the spirits of the unredeemed dead, the unsaved dead, go to that place that's called Hades. Now, Hades is not final hell, but everybody whose spirit goes to Hades after death will end up in final hell. Everybody with me? In the same way that everybody who goes to the place called paradise will one day end up in what the Bible calls the new heaven and the new earth. But the lost go to Hades, and it's not a pleasant place. You learn that from the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, because that's where that rich man was. His soul, the Bible says, his spirit was being tormented. That's the word that's used, tormented in Hades. It's not final hell, but it's not going to be a pleasant place. And the lost are kept there, awaiting the final judgment at the great white throne, Revelation 19, just as the saved are in paradise awaiting their appearance before the judgment seat of Christ. And be assured that even though these aren't final destination places, I'm just saying the eternal destiny of all people is fixed from the moment that they die. Heaven and hell is not going to be determined at the final judgment. You determine where you spend eternity this side of death. And you determine that based on your faith response or lack thereof to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Where you spend your eternal existence is always determined in this life, never in the next. And that's why there's such a premium on being prepared, on being ready to meet the Lord, on being ready for the coming of Christ, on being ready for the death of the body on being prepared to die. Hebrews 9, it is appointed for man to die once and after that, the judgment. So those who die in transition to this place the Bible calls Hades, they'll eventually find themselves in hell because of their refusal to embrace and walk with and live in the realm of Jesus Christ while they were in this life. Those who die in the Lord whose spirits go to be with Christ in the realm called paradise or heaven, will eventually populate final heaven once Christ comes again and recreates everything. But something has to occur first before the judgment and before that transition takes place, and that leads to our third affirmation this morning. Namely, we affirm the physical resurrection of the body at the second coming of Christ. Now, we've been singing about that all morning. Most of the time, when we talk about resurrection, we apply it directly to Jesus Christ without always remembering that the resurrection of Jesus Christ, though real and though necessary for His work on the cross to have any eternal effect, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is important for every single believer 
because we're reminded that with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we've also been promised that one day our bodies, like Christ, will also rise from the dead. So don't forget that. Death is not some mystical, nebulous separation of the spirit from the body, though that does occur. But death for the believer will one day involve a physical resurrection of the dead. Did you all hear me say amen? Your bodies are going to come out of the grave. And you say, well, I I get that for a person that's been, you know, nicely embalmed and dressed up and taken care of and placed in a, a very expensive coffin and put into the ground. But what about, you know, those people that die in plane crashes and those people that die at sea and their bodies kind of become nutrients for the sea? I mean, how can God, what's God going to do with them in terms of resurrecting them? Do you think that's difficult for the Lord? I mean, do you really think that it's difficult for a God who created the heavens and the earth out of nothing, nothing. A Lord who created the first man from the dust of the ground, you think it's really all that much of a challenge for our magisterial, all-powerful, sovereign, creative God to put elements that he created in the first place back together again and to do it in a much better way without any flaw whatsoever? That's no, no, no problem with God, no struggle for God. And so believers have that to look forward to, the resurrection of the body. And that will happen when Jesus Christ comes again. We talk about the resurrection for believers. We're talking about more than a spiritual resurrection. Yeah, your spirits were raised from the dead the moment you got saved. But the reality is your body is going to be raised from the dead too. And it'll happen at the second coming of Christ. This is the great passage from 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning in verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, died in the Lord. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep a.k.a. those who have died in faith, died in Christ. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. That's a good place for an amen right there. Amen. Now, we're not going to get into matters of timing and testing and tribulation this morning in terms of when all these things take place, but I am going to mention two absolute non-negotiables. One, we believe Jesus Christ is coming again to earth. And two, we believe that when Jesus comes, Those who have died in the Lord will be raised from the dead. Those are two non-negotiables. Now, we just read from 1 Thessalonians 4 that when Christ comes, Christ will bring with him those who have died in Christ prior to his comings. Well, that's, that's the spirits of those who have died in the Lord, who've been residing with the Lord in that place called paradise or heaven. Christ is going to come again. And here's the thing. He's going to bring us with him if we've died in Christ before the second coming. We're going to come with him. 
I, I never served in the military. If I had to go back and do life again, that'd probably be one thing I would, that and, and learn how to play a musical instrument. I never learned how to do that either. Those would be two things I would probably do again or do differently. Uh, but every time I read the Bible, I'm reminded that I've already been enlisted in the special forces of the Lord. And I'm going to come ride if I die in the Lord before he comes. And my prayer is that I'm alive when he comes because I think it'd be really cool to be alive at the second coming. But if I don't, I will be enlisted in the special forces of the Lord, in the cavalry of the Lord, riding along with him on a white charger. That's just the coolest thing ever. That's my spirit. But as I come with the Lord, as my spirit comes with the Lord, something is happening, happening below. My body is going to come up out of the grave. Whether that's a grave in the ground or whether that's a grave at sea or whether I've just been poofed into the nebulae of the atmosphere, my body, my physical body is going to be somehow supernaturally put back together and it's going to be reunited with my soul that comes with the Lord. And Christ is going to somehow supernaturally fuse those two back together and then infuse that with the glory of Christ in some way. Now we're ready for final heaven. Now we have a proper dwelling place. The Bible calls it a building from God. We exchange the temporary dwelling, which is our earthly body, called the tent in 2 Corinthians 5. We shed that off and we make a great exchange at the coming of Christ for an eternal building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And that action is absolutely necessary because we'll need new bodies, incorruptible bodies, in order to live in a perfect, righteous, incorruptible place called the new heaven and the new earth. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 50. The apostle Paul says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, listen up, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep but we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory, and I'm talking eternal victory, thanks to the risen Christ and the glory of God himself. Amen. Now, many people want to know, well, what's that body going to look like? What's that body going to be like? Well, we'll find out. I mean, I don't know. What I, what I do know is this, you're still going to be you in the kingdom. You'll still be you. I think that it'll still be a resemblance very much like the body. We'll, we'll have the same kind of body that Jesus had when he came out of the tomb. That's the prototype. And they were able to recognize Jesus, although it was different because they didn't really recognize him at first. They mistook him. But then they recognized him. 
So there will be definitely a connection. Jesus' resurrection body still had scars, right? So there's still going to be a connection in some way. You're still going to be you, again, only without the flaws. Wives, look at your husband and say, amen, I'm ready for that right there. Can God speed it up a little bit? No, you'll have this glorified, immortal form. And let me tell you about your body in the new heaven and the new earth. No disease, no pain, no cataracts, no creaky joints, no cancer. None of that. It's gone forever because the perishable has now put on imperishable. And the corruptible has now put on incorruption. Somebody said one time for believers when they die today, their spirits go to be with the Lord and that's life after death. But the resurrection of the body is life after life after death. And that's a good way to think of it. Let me just say that unbelievers will also be raised from the dead. If you die apart from the Lord, you're going to be raised from the dead as well, but you'll be raised not unto eternal life, but unto eternal judgment. Jesus said in the fifth chapter of John, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. All who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And this gets back to that great separation process that will take place at the second coming of Christ. The saved will be separated from the lost. The sheep will be separated from the goats. Those who, ex- who have an existence in the light of Christ will be separated from those whose existence has been characterized by the darkness of the enemy. The redeemed will be separated from the unredeemed. There'll be this great separation. Those who have been saved by faith in the blood of Christ will receive abundant and everlasting life in the presence of the Lord. Those who have not, those who resisted the gospel, those who resisted the righteousness of Christ, those who emphasize self over Jesus will be separated And they'll be cast into a place the Bible calls of outer darkness, where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's hell, final hell. And Jesus actually taught more in his earthly ministry about hell than he did about heaven. It's an amazing thing. And I think he did that because he didn't want anybody to go there. I think he wants people to be saved, people just like you and and me. And this is why we preach the gospel unrelentingly, because eternity is on the line. And the only person that can lift you out of the darkness of sin into the realm of everlasting light and life is Jesus Christ. Nobody else can do that. That's why he's always our focus and his message is always our message. Hell is a terrible place for people who are determined to live self-absorbed lives. Michael Byrd says, hell is that dimension of the future reality that quarantines evil forever. And that's right. It's the eternal dwelling place for those 
who have rejected the revelation of God, for those who've rejected the Son of God, for those who have rejected the gospel of God. People who've chosen to live in darkness rather than in the light of Christ. But the place of the redeemed, the place of the saved, is a place of eternal light and eternal life. And that takes us to a final affirmation, namely, we affirm a future and final marriage of heaven and earth. And this is a good way to describe the place that the redeemed will spend eternal life. It's a marriage. It's a union between heaven and earth. It's a place the Bible calls in Revelation 21, a new heaven and a new earth. And some have referred to the new heaven and the new earth as the Bible's best kept secret. Because again, most Christians, I think, present company uh, excluded, of course, but most Christians have an underdeveloped view of what the final heaven that the Bible describes is really like. Heaven is not some faraway ethereal place out in the distant atmosphere final heaven, the place that you and I in our resurrected glorified bodies are going to spend eternity is actually a fusion of heaven and earth together in a recreated form. God's going to do with the earth the same thing that he does with your body. He's going to recreate and glorify it so that it's outfitted and fit for the rest of eternity. It's a recreated, transfigured earth infused with the glory of God. This is the place that Christ ascended into paradise to prepare. You remember the statement that Jesus told his disciples before he died? I go to prepare a place for you, right? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. This was the vision of the apostle John in Revelation 21. I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, and thank God he did, behold, I am making all things new. That's our hope. That's what we're looking forward to. And that's why you ought not wait till you die. Every day of your life, you ought to live with a fork in your hand. Because in Christ, the best is always yet to come. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. I believe in a recreated glorified place that's going to be populated by recreated glorified people who know God, dwell with God, and glorify God for the rest of eternity. And that, brothers and sisters, means forever and ever and ever. And this is God's eternal word. Let all who rejoice in it say amen this morning. Amen. Put your hands together and let's praise the Lord. 
That's a good word.